Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's guest is John Garrett, the author of the popular investment blog, Investment Masters Class, one of my all-time favorite blogs. I talk with John about how he started the blog, what he's trying to achieve, and we also talk about great businesses and how he approaches investing. He shares with us some of the biggest lessons he's learned from working in the investment management space for over 25 years. This episode is a master's class in investing, so let's jump right in. My friends, I bring you John Garrett. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. John Garrett, welcome to The Good Life. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you here. The topic of today's discussion is one of the most interesting blogs, in my opinion, in finance that you've developed called Investment Masters Class. And at this blog, you don't write up valuations of stocks or do detailed uh, DCF models or ratios or things like that. But what you do cover is really a master class in how to invest from a psychological and a behavioral perspective and, and how to approach investing. And you study the great investors, you sometimes interview them, you pull their quotes, you attempt to understand how they think and how the mental models and how they approach investing. It's a great resource for people that want to get into investing or are already professionals and want to improve in their knowledge. So I thought I'd start with just asking you how you got started with writing this blog and, and what the purpose was. Well, thanks, Sean. And um, yeah, thanks again for having me on the show. Well, really, I mean, if I go back to the start of my um, my career, I can really thank Michael for that, who was my father. He was a um, he was a stockbroker, and he had a saying when I was growing up that um, if you want to be where it's at, you need to be in real estate or you need to be in the stock market. And so, I suppose, really, like if I wanted to keep him happy, I had to. Uh, I didn't have a lot of choices. So when I came out of high school, I decided that um, I was going to study real estate. So I studied real estate. Uh, I enrolled in a degree course in real estate. And then in about the second year of that course, we started to study finance and we started to study the stock market. And at that point, I found I had a real passion for the stock market and for investing. So I ended up trying to work out a way, I suppose, of how I might be able to marry those two things together. And when I finished my uni degree, I was in a small town. So I ended up having to move to Sydney. I was fortunate to get a job with an investment bank. And for the first seven years, I was working, putting both of those two skill sets, real estate and the stock market or finance together. I worked as a read analyst and then I worked on the dealing desk advising clients on securitized real estate. After that, I kind of moved into more broader investing. So not just looking at real estate, but looking at all types of different investments. So looking at um, industrial companies and healthcare companies and kind of expanding expanding my horizon. And through that process, really, ever since I left university, I've really been continuing my learning journey. You know, if I look back on what I knew, you know, a few years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, and I'm sure if I look back on what I know today in five years, you know, it's just a continual learning process. Over that period of time, I kept a lot of notes when I read things, I kept a lot of notes. I started to find 
these thematics, these common thematics, which apply not only to great investors, but to great companies. I actually have a Word document, which is, you know, every day I'll add to that. And then maybe three or four years ago, I think one of my friends said to me, why don't you think about putting it all together and putting it down where, you know, it could be useful for people. And that was really the genesis of um, the investment master's class that if I want to teach people how to invest and and if my children are, are interested in investing, I think a lot of the things that are taught in your typical business schools, you know, they miss a lot of the things that are important in investing. And so that really was the genesis of behind the investment master's class. You know, I couldn't agree more with that last comment you just mentioned. I got an MBA from the University of Oregon. We spend a lot of time studying discounted cash flow, you know, looking at financial statements and all that's important, but I was never assigned any reading in Warren Buffett. We didn't study Berkshire Hathaway. I never read Warren's letters. Most of the books that I now consider the most important as far as providing knowledge and understanding and context for me with investing were not assigned during that those two years. And it's uh, surprising. It sounds like it's similar in Australia. And when I look at your blog, I see a lot of cross-pollination with some of the books and mentors that have meant something to me, but also you've introduced me and other readers to to new and other thinking too, which is which is great. Yeah, I think that's um, you know that's a fair comment, and you know I always find it fascinating when I talk to um, students that have come out of finance courses, um, and you ask them about Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett or what they've studied. You, I think nowadays they're, they're doing a little bit more about behavioural finance, but you know also about financial history. I always think about investing is is more an art. It's really more an art than a science, and. If you were going to study an art, there's no way you wouldn't be studying the great artists, you know, the Monets and and so forth. And I think, you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are probably the two greatest investors that have been around for the last couple of hundred years. They've got a lot to teach. And, you know, I think you'll learn a lot more from studying their writings and, you know, what they're talking about than learning about the capital asset pricing model and the efficient market hypothesis. But they're obviously much easier things to test on. So, I think that's one of the reasons why, and not all business schools, obviously, there's the real exceptions like Columbia, but you know, a lot of them continue to teach things that really the great investors aren't focused on. So when your friends encouraged you to start writing, what were some of the initial articles about? Did you get some feedback? And what did you learn from putting your thoughts out there on the web and also just getting them down on paper as far as articles? Well... When I started the investment masterclass, I think it's evolved a little bit like I've evolved as a um, as an investor, like kind of more recently, some of the things that you know I'm focused on were probably things I was less focused on three or four years ago. But you know it, it's also been a good method of getting in touch with um, with different investors and getting feedback with different investors and people, you know I'm, I've got an account on Twitter, and you know I get a lot of feedback from people about about, you know, hey, this is a good book or, you know, further to your comments on that, that's interesting, but have you thought about this? So in many ways, it kind of tests my thinking and my ideas. And it also, for me, is a repository almost about where I keep my thoughts and I can go back to, on a daily basis, I'm constantly kind of revisiting parts of the website and thinking about what it means for companies, the companies that I'm investing in. And really, really a lot of this business is connecting the dots and pattern recognition. And, and I suppose the other thing is it's a, it's a motivating factor to, to try and make sure that um, you know I'm putting some product out there for people every now and again. 
Well, one of the characteristics of your articles that's something I really appreciate is you put a lot of quotes in the article. It could be a quote from a well-known investor, or it could be a quote from something uh, an investor has has written maybe in their report to investors or in a book. And it the way that you weave those in is fantastic. How do you keep track of all that? Is that from your notes? And, and how do you pull an article together like that? Because it's, it's really quite impressive. Well, when I read, and I, and I tend to read a lot, when I read, I'm always um, you know, underlining and I'm trying to take out the key lessons out of the things, that I'm, the things that I'm learning about. And I've got a Word document, which is probably you know, 1,000, maybe 2,000 pages of quotes that I pull out. And so what I've tried to do is try to find these common thematics about how investors, the great investors think and the great companies operate. And so, you know, something might be quite topical and I might think, okay, I want to write about margin of safety or I want to write about price earnings ratio or maybe people are talking about great businesses. So, you know, I'll go back and all of those quotes really are just sitting in that um, in that document. And if you look at the tutorial section of the website, there's 100 tutorials and they really are just the great quotes coming out of investor letters, investor interviews. And once again, all these common thematics that you find, which run through the great investors. So that's kind of, that's where they come from. I love that tutorial section, by the way. It's, it's a great way to get started. In fact, I've pointed my son in that direction who has expressed some interest in, in finance and investing. He's only 17, but it's not so overwhelming that someone that's just getting started could start out there and learn a little bit. Yeah, I've got a 16-year-old son as well and a 19-year-old son. And what I've tried to do with that is really, you know, start with the basics. Like the first tutorial was preserve capital. And then the second one is understanding compounding. And, you know, they're two of the, you know, I think two of the kind of key lessons of investing. Great investing, I don't think, has to be has to be challenging. It doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be highly mathematical. Um, a lot of it is really kind of common sense. And as I said, when you when you study a lot of the great investors, which I've done, you just find these these same things continue to uh, come up in terms of you know what they're talking about, how they operate, how they think about investing, and that's kind of really it's like you know don't take my word for it. Here's a whole heap of investors that have compounded capital at very very high rates of return over long periods of time. You know, in my mind, I'd rather much rather listen to what a um, what a guy with a great track record's got to say as opposed to a um, an academic. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about maybe a recent article just to give people a flavor of of what you're right about. And there was a popular one recently published called Fight the Fade. It actually had uh, two rounds, two rounds in the fight, round one and round two. Can you talk a little bit about about that article, what the fade is and, and why we need to fight it? Really, it was about great businesses. And fighting the fade is, you know, is about finding businesses which defy the normal pressures that you find with business, you know, when, when you invest in businesses or with businesses, as the saying goes, no tree grows to the sky, and like that, no business can really continue to to grow at very high rates of return. If you if you look back over history, you know, most businesses can grow at high rates, and then they tend to fade, and that's that's what that term means is really the growth rates fade. And you know, certainly when I studied business and you learn how to model companies. Ordinarily, you might have high growth for the next three to five years, and then that growth rate might be in the teens, tends to fade away, and then over time, it kind of gets down to maybe a growth rate in line with GDP. 
I think the reason, you know, the reason obviously is because compounding is so powerful that if you grow at a higher rate of return for too long a time or for a very long period of time, you'll end up being as big as the economy itself. So it's sensible and people understand that. Um, and when analysts and investors think about businesses and model businesses, they have the cash flows or the earnings of those businesses fading over time. But some businesses, that doesn't happen. Some businesses don't fade. Some businesses have defied the mean reverting kind of effects on companies. And, you know, most capitalism, as you know, is capitalism is brutal. You have a successful business, someone turns up over the road trying to compete with you and take those super profits away. Markets saturate when you get too big. It can be challenging to grow. Businesses become complacent. Management might do poor capital allocation. So there's good reasons that businesses can't grow at high rates of return. But if you can find and identify those businesses or businesses which can grow at very high rates of return for long periods of time, they tend to be a lot more valuable than what the market ascribes to those uh, to those businesses and they can remain cheap for very long periods of time. And it really comes back to understanding that power of compounding, which after more than two decades in the market, I still think that it's hard for the human mind to understand the power of compounding. We tend to think in linear terms. The best example uh, more recently is obviously COVID and it starts with, you know, one person and now, you know, millions and millions of people get it. I mean, it's just an incredible power compounding. So if you can find a business which can continue to grow at high rates for longer periods than the market expects, those businesses, are, that's the holy grail of investing. They're the great businesses, but they're, they're kind of few and far between. So that's really like, you know, what that article is about is, um, you know, is trying to find these high quality businesses that can grow for longer than what the market anticipates. You know, you've got a chart in that article that you pulled from Nick Sleep, one of his letters to his investors. And I'm a big fan of Nick Sleep and, and his investment letters, which, by the way, people can get now. They're they're available through the Financial yeah, Times. Yeah, Yeah. And, and I highly recommend them. I know you've read them because you quote from them heavily and you've done an expose of Nick Sleep. But Nick Sleep from Nomad Partners has a great track record of annual returns uh, compounding. But in that article... There's a chart of Walmart and it shows the stock price of Walmart and then it shows the price you could pay and still get a 10% return over that period. And it really is mind-boggling. Sometimes you have to see these things visually and that chart just jumped out at me as far as what you can pay for a good business and still get a return in the long run. And it's a testament to the fact that the market has a hard time truly valuing these fade-defying companies. Yeah, it's a fantastic chart and it really does kind of point out, you know, how valuable these um, these great businesses that defy the fade are. And um, yeah, from memory, I think he said that, you know, you could have paid 150 times uh, more than, not 150 times PE, you could have paid 150 times more for a share in Walmart in 1972 than the current share price. And even if you missed it and 10 years later, you decided to buy Walmart, you could have still paid I think the PE was 200. You could have paid a PE two, greater than 200 times uh, for that, that um, for that business. That once again, that just comes down to the ex- absolute extreme power of compounding. Now, you know, Nick Sleep wouldn't be telling you to go out and pay 150 times the share price, but you know, I think it's a recognition that um, 
these great businesses, they can be cheap for very long periods of time. Uh, the difficulty, obviously, is, um, is is finding them. Exactly. And, and also in that article, you quote an economist from the Santa Fe Institute who wrote a very seminal article actually way back in the 90s about how as the economy is moving into more of a digital economy and the value of intangible value to a company was growing as far as a percentage, that he was foreseeing the idea that companies could grow at higher rates for longer periods of time. And he sort of defined what that might look like. And you know, one of the things that he said at, at that time, and this is when Microsoft was just kind of becoming a powerhouse in the United States, you know, the first CD-ROM of Microsoft Windows that went out the door cost $50 million, but the second one cost $3. And it gets to this idea of returns to economies of scale. Yeah, Brian Arthur, he, um, he wrote that piece in, um, in 1996. And I tell you, I wish I'd, uh, I wish I'd read it and um, internalized it um, in 1996 or the early 2000s, because um, I think I would have looked at the world a lot differently. I mean, it was just incredible, incredible foresight. And as, as you say, he worked out that um, the world was changing. You know, if there's one constant in investing, investing and there's not many, it is that the world continues to change. So in the industrial era, uh, you tended to have diminishing returns with businesses. So um, I think some of the examples he gives is if you run a coal mine and you want more coal, ordinarily you've um, mined the best seams. Um, agriculture, you've probably planted out the best valleys. Uh, you've probably hired the best staff. So you start to have to pay more and you get inefficiencies. But with, you know, and, and Microsoft is the classic example, that you spend money up front and then, um, you know, the, uh, the returns increase over time. And, you know, a lot of the things he talked about back then, are, are, you know, are just are well known today. So he talked about things effectively like first mover advantages, network effects, customer lock-in. You know, they are very powerful features of some of these, um, of some of these technology businesses. So I think if you looked at the fangs in, you know, the early 2000s with that mindset, that he kind of came up with, um, you could understand, you know, where the destination might be for these businesses over the next couple of decades, that even though they had grown, that, um, you know, the runway for growth continued to be pretty solid. So it's a very useful mental model. And it's something that, you know, we think about all the time when we're investing today, that um, you have a business that's winning. And a lot of these businesses, the barriers to entry, when, when you think about them, probably, you know, in, in many cases aren't high. Um, one of the classic examples we've got here in Australia is a business called realestate.com.au and they dominate the listing market down here. They've probably got 95% of the listing market. Um, and when I think about that business, I don't think it would cost a lot to set up a business and advertise a few listings uh, and try and go out and you know get, get real estate agents to, to use it. But obviously, the difficulty is, is that convincing people that they should be using it when they can use the real estate.com business, which is every single listing and every single agent. Like there's just no reason for someone to come and, you know, look at it. So as the business grows and as they get more people using it, it just becomes more and more valuable when you move to a situation where you have a, a winner take all. And I think, you know, real, the real estate one's a pretty good example because you can have a business which control, which basically owns the whole sector. Whereas if you think back to the old days, we had real estate agents, you know, working on the down at the local shops. I mean, you just can't get, 
you know, 100% dominance, but you can do that with these um, with these technology type companies. So, yeah, I think it was a uh, it was an incredible insight, and um, yeah, it's well worth um, you know, kind of if people haven't read it, uh, uh, it was in the Harvard Business Review in 1996, and it's called Increasing Returns and the Changing Nature of Business. That's a great example. The the real estate company in the United States, I, I would point to Craigslist. You know, this website that we use to buy and sell different products and services. And it looks like it's still in the 1990s. I mean, if you look at the the web interface of this site, you would say, you know, it would re- bring you back to the good old days of the internet. And it's a testament to the fact that once they've captured the market, as far as the buyers, the buyers come because the sellers are there, the sellers come because the buyers are there, that it doesn't cost a lot of capital to keep this going. You don't have to reinvest in it. You've got the lock-in, you've got the network effects, and it's it's an incredible business. And I think there's similar businesses around the world. Different countries have winner-take-all companies that have won in that marketplace. And it's a testament to what Brian Arthur was talking about. And, and I want to get to Brian Arthur. He's an economist, and he was working out of the Santa Fe Institute when he wrote that article. And you know, Nick Sleep, you said if, if you were to connect the dots in the early 2000s with the fangs, you'd have a chance at looking ahead and saying, okay, maybe there's some increasing returns here to scale. Maybe there's some network effects. And that's exactly what Nick Sleep did, being an early investor in Amazon. And he also is a big proponent of the Santa Fe Institute. And you talk about that in one of your articles. So can you tell us about the Santa Fe Institute, maybe Nick Sleep's involvement, how you see the Institute and why it might be important for investors? Well, yeah, I think I came across the the Santa Fe Institute reading um, reading Nick Sleep's letters, and I was fortunate to they have become public a couple of years ago. And um, and upon you know, I noticed I recognised that he talked a lot about the Santa Fe Institute, and he pulled out. I mean, one of the incredible things about him is that you know, in a very kind of Charlie Charlie Munger esque fashion, he just delved into different disciplines. He just pulled out these. Uh, mental models and um, and he applied them to his investing to come up with his investing theses and I think you know he was investing in um, in Amazon in you know in the early 2000s and um, I understand that I think he still has that position today you know when I see that and I see you know the returns and I think his returns have been about 20 percent a year you know I think that's something that I need to um, you know maybe I need to have a look at you know kind of um, delve into so you know, some of the things that he, he talked about in that was uh, in, you know, obviously increasing returns. He talked about, you know, businesses when they move down the trajectory. Most people think about businesses as probabilities of success don't really, they don't really change. Yet he realised, and this was uh, from some work, I think, from Ollie Peters from the Santa Fe Institute, he realises when you move down the probability branches, the chances of success actually increase. And, you know, you're more likely to succeed. And, and when you think about these kind of increasing return businesses and technology businesses today, I mean, that's certainly, you know, what happens is you might start off with four or five participants in an industry and then there's an inflection point and one starts to take off and starts to take market share. And, um, you know, it actually gets less risky as it moves down that, that pathway. So sometimes when we're looking at businesses, we might sit there and say, look, we don't want to buy it at $10, but once they start to move down that branch, things are more likely to be successful. These guys look like they're going to be the winner. We'll look to deploy capital then. And then there's another guy that was kind of involved in it, um, a guy called Per Back that 
the history of nature, all sorts of you know different things that you see in nature, and he applied that to to economics. And certainly, Brian Arthur's thinking about economics is you know it's really contrary to the standard economics. But having those mental models and understanding those mental models, you start to see economics in a different light. You start to see companies in a different light. You know, maybe you want have a bit of an understanding which can provide you an edge in terms of understanding a business or understanding where a business might be uh, might be travelling to. So there's a book called Complexity. A very famous VC investor, Bill Gurley, uh, I read recently said it's the best book that he's ever read. You know, you just start to see the world in you know when you when you look at it through a different lens, you start to see the world in a um, in a different light, and it can provide you an edge in terms of trying to find um, investment theses. Yeah, you need an edge in this business. And what I get from the Santa Fe Institute is that you can find an edge in and cultivate an edge in cross-functional learning and bringing in thinking from different functions and different disciplines and applying that to the world of business. Just to give another example, maybe from, from Nick Sleep, since we're on that track, you know, he talks about in his letters, this idea of scale economics shared and it's his favorite business model. And you talk about this in your Fight the Fade article that there are certain business models, network effects being one of them. And this idea of scale economics shared is another one. When I first read that, it really jumped out at me that I had never heard of a business model described like that. But when he described it, it made sense. And I think the genesis of that came from his thinking with the uh, Santa Fe Institute. Can you talk a little bit about that model and why it, it can fight the fade? Yeah, sure. Um, scale economic shared is is really a, a term that um, I think he coined. And what it's about is it's about both solving for business longevity as opposed to short term as opposed to short term profitability. So, what happens in that business is as as a business which deploys that strategy grows they get scale benefits and and most businesses keep those scale benefits for themselves and for their shareholders. But what a business that does scale economic shared is that, you know, as the name suggests, is they share the increase in profitability with their customers through lower prices. And those lower prices encourage more purchases. They get volume increases. The customer creates the low prices, they reciprocate, they buy more products, the company is more profitable. And then once again, they use that profit and they reinvest that profit. They give that profit back to the customer. Now, you know, that, that's against conventional wisdom. And when you look at these businesses, their margins and, um, you know, Nick Sleep wrote about these businesses and this was uh, more than, you know, probably 15 years ago when the analysts on Wall Street were all very critical because they thought Costco margins were too low. But Costco was particularly keeping their margins low to sustain the business and to fend off any competition. So, and as you know, obviously, as the business gets bigger and they have more scale benefits, it's very, very hard for someone to come in and, and compete against that business. The classic example is a business like Costco, which is, uh, you know, and even Amazon, uh, where, you know, Costco will set their prices not relative to what the customer can pay, but relative to what they can deliver. A basic example would be, you know, they might be selling a pair of jeans, the competitor sells it for $100, they can buy it for 60 they could sell it for $90 and make a nice profit. Instead of doing that, they'll sell for, um, you know, they, they'll put a standard markup on the product and sell it for $70. And they get all these benefits from doing that, but they're obviously not maximising short-term 
they're not maximizing short-term profitability. Costco do it, Audi do it. Um, it's an it's a business model that you find across industries. So you know Warren Buffett recognized it with Nebraska Furniture Mart. He recognized it with Geico. Nick Sleep recognized it with um, with Ford. Uh, Henry Ford is how he operated his business. And so it's not a it's not a new business model. In fact, um, I was reading a, a book about um, Cornelius Vanderbilt. He was kind of the first tycoon of America, maybe a bit like uh, the Jeff Bezos of today. At his peak, he was worth. They, they said he was worth one dollar of every nine dollars that was in circulation in America. So he, he was a truly um, truly wealthy individual. And he started his business on the harbour of um, New York in steamships. And when he started that business, I think that they were charging $4 for a return trip. And he came in and uh, he dropped the prices to $1. He ended up buying more efficient steamships. And then ultimately, he was offering fair passage, or sorry, free passage on the um, on the steamships. And he was charging people. He put up the prices of food and beverages. And if you think about that business model, you know, it's no different to someone like a, a Southwest Airlines. And what he realized was that he was really focused on volume and he realised that if he cut the prices, he could attract a lot more volume onto his ship. So it's a business model that's been around for a long time. It defies the fade because it's very, very hard for other businesses to compete with. And, you know, Nick Sleep certainly recognised that. Charlie Munger's got a, you know, got a great saying, which is take a simple idea and take it seriously. And I think Nick Sleep, you know, while he started off doing all sorts of different types of investing, by the time that he um, closed the fund in 2016 to focus on his philanthropic efforts, uh, 60% of his portfolio was sitting in in those type of businesses. Yeah, it's certainly an amazing story. And I think when Nick closed up shop, he he recommended three stocks, right? Amazon, Costco, and Berkshire. And you're right, two of those three are scale economic shared businesses. And then you could say that Warren Buffett and Berkshire are just absolutely fabulous at allocating capital and understand that business model as being a, an excellent one to invest in. And that that's a great example of how at the investment master's class, you bring together different masters at investing, different mental models, different approaches to investing and weave these together in a way that's really brings some understanding to the to the complexity of investing. Let's talk a little bit about books because you also have a great section at your website called the Master's Bookshelf, and you've got uh, various categories of books. Can you just kind of talk about that part of your site and, and sort of what you're hoping to achieve with it? And maybe pick out one or two books um, that, that you recommend for people in finance. If the books are on the bookshelf, generally means that I've read them. I do read a lot of books and I've tried to delineate them into different different areas. So there's books on great investors, there's books on great businesses, there's books on history, there's books on psychology, and then, you know, there's a there's a section called other. You know, if I've read a book and most books I tend to find, you find something useful, but you know, if I found the book useful, I tend to put it into um, into the bookshelf. And a lot of the books that I read will come from recommendations from from other investors so there was a time when you know I went through and read all the books that um, you know many of the books that Charlie Munger recommended and on the website there's a section which goes through a lot of Munger's you know recommendations things like Charles Darwin, Einstein, Lee Kuan Yew, Leonardo da Vinci 
you know, a lot of those books that uh, if I think are really good, I'll, I'll, I'll write them up. There's books on businesses. I spent a lot of time, particularly in the last 10 years, really delving into, into great businesses. There's books on, on psychology about, um, you know, understanding what our biases are. A lot of interesting really is kind of understanding yourself and, and your behaviour. And then I think you can learn from, you know, learn from the great investors. So I read a lot of books. I read a lot of investor letters. I mean, you mentioned Nick Sleep. They're some of the best investment letters I think anyone can read. Buffett's letters are obviously, you know, there's a guy who's 90 years old, Munger's 97. There's not a lot that those blokes haven't seen or been pitched to. You know, you can definitely learn a lot from those guys. If I think about two books that, that have really influenced me outside, outside of the kind of top five books, one of them would be Influence. And I know you had Robert Giordani in, um, on your podcast, um, you know, really just understanding human behaviour and, and, and why people behave the way, the way they do. I mean, at the end of the day, businesses are people and uh, the market's full of people. So, you know, if you can understand why people do things and, uh, you know, it can certainly give you, a, um, give you an edge in investing. And the other book that I, that I really enjoyed was a book called In Search of Excellence, uh, which is a book about great businesses. It was written by Tom Peters in 1982. He was a McKinsey consultant and it looked at like America's great businesses and what made those businesses, like what really made those businesses great businesses. A lot of it is qualitative. A lot of the things that make the great businesses are qualitative factors. And having studied over the last 10 years, like lots of great businesses like Costco and Walmart and Home Depot and Southwest Airlines, like you see Disney, you see the same things just come up again and again, these common thematics. And he really, like if you go through that book, he really kind of identified all of those things and many of those things are qualitative in nature. And the numbers are a byproduct of those qualitative things. I mean, a lot of people start with the numbers, but we're trying to find quality first. You know, that's our starting point. You know, what makes this business, Munger always says, you know, ask the question, why, why, why? What makes these businesses so great? And if you can find these great businesses which have these characteristics, and so I think that that book has a lot of great stuff in it in terms of understanding what makes a what makes a great business and you know after four decades in my mind it's as relevant today as it was then and uh, I have read that Buffett has said it's you know I've only seen him quite at once but once or twice but I think he said that it's it's one of the best business books that you could possibly read and having read about all these other businesses I mentioned um, you just see the same thematics over and over I'm a big fan of trying to identify quality businesses and find opportunities to invest in them for the long run. And one of the reasons I personally am attracted to that kind of investing is, well, first of all, it's because it's long, you can hold it for long periods of time. You don't have to sell and turn over your positions as much if you can get a good business like that and you can stay invested in it. But in addition, the risk of valuation risk when you get into the stock, if you know it's a quality business and you, you plan on being in it for a long time, the valuation risk isn't as high and you know you can you can pay up to a certain degree for a qualitative business if you know you're going to hold on to it for a long time and you have patient investors or you personally are a patient investor 
And I find for those reasons that that approach is is good for me. And I think that's one of the great things about your site too, is you, you help people try to understand, well, what is it about our own psychology? What is our own edge? We have to find that if we want to be successful in investing. Yeah, I think that um, you, you're right. It, you know, the quality investing, um, one of the best hedges that you can find, and maybe the best hedge is owning a very high, is a very high quality business. You know, we've seen that over the last couple of years. I mean, we've had the, you know, big sell, you know, reasonably big sell off in October, kind of 2018, when the S&P fell 20%. We've seen it in, um, in the pandemic. Great businesses, you know, they survive. They come out the other side. And in many ways, they come out the other side stronger as their competitors struggle through challenging times. And if you can find a business that continues to, to grow, share prices do all sorts of things. Many times share prices move around for absolutely no reason, you know, in relation to the underlying business. But if you can find a business and pay a reasonable price for it and, you know, every day that business is growing, regardless of maybe what the share price is doing, then, you know, if you pay a reasonable price for it and it's earning X and it can compound its earnings at 15% per annum over the next five or 10 years, well, it's going to be pretty unusual that that business is going to be worth less in that period of time. But Really, it's about focusing on the destination about, you know, where is that business going to be and trying to determine what's the DNA of that business, what's making that business so successful, and then trying to kind of filter out the noise of the market in terms of short-term GDP forecasts, what's inflation going to do, not now, but previously, you know, what's Donald Trump tweeted, are we going to have trade problems? Great businesses survive and, you know, we will get ups and downs in markets and the one common thing out of every crash in the last 100 years of the US stock market, it's always recovered and, and continued to hit higher levels. As I say, high quality businesses continue to thrive and they do the work. They do the work compounding for you. You don't have to continue to find new ideas. You know, some people say, and obviously price is important, but, you know, the ultimate type of investment is, you know, buying an investment that doubles your money, triples your money, goes on to be a multi-bagger. Price won't solve for that. So if you buy a price and you're you're trying to buy it at, you know, you think the stock's worth 100 bucks and you're buying it at 60 bucks or 70 bucks, you know, you'll write it to 100 dollars. You'll make a good return, but price doesn't solve for kind of compounding multi-bagger returns. It's only quality in my mind that solves for that. So you know, that's very much where we're focused. Well, it sounds a lot like you know, in Nick Sleep's early letters when he was running around trying to buy a hundred dollar business for 60 dollars, kind of all over the world. He talked about. A number of businesses he got into in Africa, which were very cheap from a valuation perspective, but also came along with a lot of challenges of doing business in Africa and, and being a shareholder in these various countries. And, and it was a lot of work. And, and he finally started shifting to this qualitative approach that you're talking about. You recently shifted from advising institutions and hedge funds to managing your own portfolio. What was that like? And, and where are you focused now in investing? Yeah, I mean, just on your former point, Nick Sleep, um, I'm not sure if I made that point, but Nick Sleep, you know, he's not alone. Like many of the great investors, they make that transition. Buffett and Munger made that transition. I mean, you know, he used to be a cigar butt investor, you know, Benjamin Graham style. And I think around 1972, when they bought Seize Candy, they started to realize, wow, like, we need to own these great businesses. And, you know, other famous investors, Lee Lu, Chris Hon from the Children's Fund, even, you know, the hedge fund manager, Dan Loeb, if you read his, you know, recent letters, he's really focused on quality. So, I think a lot of a lot of investors make that transition from 
you know, trying to buy cheap stocks and taking driving them right in the back up to intrinsic value to finding compounding machines where the business you're going to get the returns out of the business. The business is going to deliver that to you. About three years ago, I, I moved from advising clients, and I was really advising institutional clients and and hedge funds about investing investing strategy. And I moved to uh, to running a fund. You know, it's probably something I wish that I'd done a lot earlier. I'd spent twenty years on the advisory on the advisory side, but I'm not disappointed in so much as you know I've just learned so much. I suppose the the issue for me and the big concern for me was. I think it's a lot easier to tell people what to do than to do it yourself. Certainly, that was um, my concern. You know, I had run running the uh, hedge fund advisory business. I had run uh, what they call alpha portfolios for some of the big hedge funds. So I, I had a pretty good idea. I'd done that for more than a decade, so I had a pretty good idea about you know how to build a portfolio, how to manage risk, and how to think about position size. But I'd never actually really sat in the seat and pulled the trigger. I started in October of 2018, so it was a real baptism of fire. The S&P 500 fell about 20% in the next two seconds. And then, um, you know, COVID obviously was a, um, you know, the market reaction in COVID was a very, very testing time. The portfolio I run now, and I run it with um, three other, you know, we've got three other great guys in the team. We're really focused on on small, you know, kind of small companies, which I haven't really spent any time on. But I think the same things that you learn about with great business, that doesn't really matter in terms of the, the size of the business. We're looking for the same type of thematics when we're managing, um, you know, kind of when we're managing that portfolio. So, you know, we're very focused on finding high quality businesses. We're focused on quality before price. And we don't really focus too much on the, um, too much on the macro. I mean, we keep an eye on it, but as a generalisation, the returns that we get out of portfolio are going to come from the idiosyncratic features of the businesses that we own and not out of, you know, what the inflation print's going to be or, you know, where interest rate's going to be or where GDP's going to be. The key drivers of these businesses are going to be the qualitative, you know, ordinarily qualitative things. And the businesses we like tend to, you know, they tend to have something idiosyncratic about them. A lot of the ideas actually, I mean, believe it or not, a lot of the ideas come out of reading books and kind of connecting dots and and and, and pattern recognition. You know, if I go through the top positions in my portfolio, a lot of them I've come up with those ideas by seeing something and thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's a similar business. Maybe, you know, maybe they've got the same benefits. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about. Your connecting the dots and, and the pattern recognition from the work you've put into in writing the investment master's class and what that intellectual exercise and rigor has done as far as your investment acumen and your investment ability. The fact that you have written these articles, put your thoughts down, had to think through what you believe as far as investing, and now you're applying it. Has that? Do you see that running in the background? Has it impacted you? It's had a massive, it's had a huge impact in terms of how we think about how we think about investing and the types of businesses, um, the types of businesses we're attracted to. I mean, a couple of examples. One of the businesses that, that we own, they're like a platform for fixing up jobs when an insurance company might have a, uh, there might be a natural disaster, and that business will come in and they'll employ people to fix up that business. And I met with the CEO of that business, and for the first half hour, all the guy talked about was his people and culture. 
within that business. And then he talked about how the business was structured and how he incentivized. You know, he really hired on integrity and, and kind of the quality of the people. And he had an amazing incentive structure. You know, everyone owned a small part of that business. And I'd recently read a book by, you know, highly recommended by Charlie Munger called Les Schwab Tires, which is about a basic tire business in the US, which had had an incredible amount of success. And, you know, selling tires, I mean, they're a pretty commodity type product. And he's just said, like, the incentive structure allowed this business to compete and win. And so when I was speaking to the CEO of this business, all I could think about was this is, you know, this is the same model of Les Schwab tyres and it's going to be very, very hard for other businesses to compete with that business because, you know, if you own the business, you're going to, you know, you're going to work on the weekend, you're going to get up at six o'clock, you're going to work till seven o'clock, you're not working nine to five. And so that was, you know, that little mental model helped. And then I think I'd read the business about book about Copart where they talked about how they could offer national scale and that was a big competitive advantage that other people couldn't and they could offer that to the insurers. And that was a similar type of mental model for this business is that they could offer national scale. So you start to build out these um, mental models and understanding the qualitative things. And so that's a, you know, that's kind of an example, you know, and if I went through the positions in the portfolio, really that's a lot of the stocks in the portfolio have come from those ideas. You know, you might be reading something and then there'll be a couple of pages that you think, oh, you know, I need to dig deeper into that. Maybe I hadn't thought about that angle about that business. So, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, it's been instrumental in the success we've had in terms of managing the portfolio. The story of Les Schwab reminds me of the, the Munger quote. I think I've got it right. He says, you never, ever think about something else when you should be thinking about the power of incentives. You know, if there's anyone in the world that understands incentives, he's got to be the key. And he says, even though he understands it better than, anyone or most people, he still under underestimates it. And, you know, the other saying that I like is show me the incentive and I'll show you the behaviour. So, um, yeah, very much we're trying to find, you know, they're qualitative type of features. They're not going to, you know, they don't show up on a spreadsheet. Uh, you're not going to find them in a spreadsheet. You really need to kind of dig deep and understand the business, talk to the people working in the business. And that's really, you know, that's where we focus our time. Well, in closing, John, do you have any advice for younger people that are getting into the business. You you talked about your 16-year-old son. I've got a son that's kind of interested. We, we probably all have younger people we're mentoring and are interested in getting into the business. What, what advice do you have for them? Well, I think if you've got to be passionate. So, you know, you've got to find something that you love. You know, I've been in the industry for 25 years. I don't think I've worked a day. I don't think I've worked a day in my life because I, you know, I just, I, I love it. So if you can find something that, that you love, you know, when we're looking to employ people, really, like I'm focused on passion. You know, I want people that are that are passionate, that um, that love it. I think you've got to take it as a you know continuous learning. So you know, you finish your studies, but you've got to keep learning. I mean, markets evolve, companies evolve, so you've got to keep you've got to keep learning. If you can find a good mentor, I think that's um, I think that can be very useful. And I think you need to read widely and. And as you say, if you study finance, you don't tend to study Warren Buffett and um, and Charlie Munger, and you you know you tend not to study great businesses. So I think that there's a lot of I think there's a lot of value in kind of studying you know studying success and maybe even you know studying a bit of failure where people haven't been successful. You know, and reach out. I mean, that's another thing. Reach out to people. 
you know, I probably get one or two people a month reach out. And, um, you know, I think most people in this industry will give you their time. If you show that you're passionate, if you want to grab a coffee with people, you know, most people in this industry, like that I've come across anyway, are very friendly and very helpful. And, you know, not many people do that. So, um, you know, kind of, it's hard at times, but put yourself out there. And, um, you know, that, that's probably what I'd recommend. Yeah, it's one of the things that really draws me to the industry is just the intellectual challenge it represents. You know, investing requires a certain amount of investment knowledge and business knowledge. But to your point, reading a biography on Charles Darwin, reading a story about a Les Schwab starting a tire company in Oregon in the in the fifties, and reading a story about Leonardo da Vinci or Benjamin Franklin or Henry Ford, I mean you can just really exercise your your intellectual capacity. And if you've got the passion and the curiosity, you can learn, you can apply it, and it will help you in the long run in this industry. And it's just something that I love and probably one of the reasons I started the podcast. John, where can people find out more about you and, and your writing? Obviously, the Investment Master's class is a great place to start. Well, uh, the Investment Masterclass, you can, um, you know, it's free. You can um, You can join the mailing list and then You'll get emails about different things that I think are um, are interesting, things that are, are appealing to me. There's a hundred kind of tutorials there, which um, I mean, it sounds daunting, but really, they're not that complex. Um, investing's not; it doesn't have to be complex. It's just a lot of it is just common sense. I'm on Twitter, which is uh, which I post a fair bit on that, uh, which again is a bit of a repository where I keep my ideas, and that's uh, I think the handle is at Masters Invest. Dot com and anyone can hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, I work the business I work for is called MA Financial, and always happy to um, always open to a chat, and you know I look forward to it. Well, great. Well, this has been a wonderful chat. I really appreciate you coming on the Good Life. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me, and keep up the great work. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Good Life podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.